Hi everyone, welcome to the second part of my interview with the Regency Romance author, Katherine Coleman. Last time, we left off with Catherine explaining her method of creating her characters. And in the second part, we will dive into Coleman's books. Let's begin. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, okay, so my next question would probably be, what is um, your favorite story that you've written so far and why? Well, you know, that is like asking a mother which of her children is favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this and, you know, there are different reasons, you know, for each book really why I would like it. I actually thought about this. I just said, actually, I would find it very hard to choose between them. It's just um, the memory of the very first book that I wrote, you know, my very, very, the when I sat down that day when I said, if you don't do it now, was actually the one that I published in, um, was it last year? A Comfortable Alliance? The year before last, 2021. Um, and you know, it was my first book, and uh, I wrote as far as I, you know, did it, and then I kind of felt okay, I've done that. And then I got became a member of the new writer scheme of the British Romantic Novelists Association, which is a wonderful scheme for aspiring writers of romance. Um, because the membership means that you can send a full manuscript in for a critique. And so I decided I was going to do this. Like you join at the beginning of the year. Um, and I said, well, I'm not going to take the book that I have there. I'm actually going to start another book, which was actually The Murmur of Masks, which was the second book I published. And I sent that in. And I had a wonderful um, critique partner who sent me nine pages of notes. I went and she said, I normally would not do this, she said, but I sense this is the first book you've written. A lot of it is all over the place, but you have a voice. That was the important thing to me. Once she had said that, I was happy. And, uh, but, you know, I was completely like I was head hopping like mad for example this is one of the things she picked up and um, it was just so I went through all her points and comments and I took them all out and uh, in the meantime having sent that off I had started writing perception and illusion and that would be another thing I would say to new writers if you sent a manuscript off somewhere, don't feel I shouldn't be doing anything until I've got that back and all the rest of it. Start your next book, you know, because you should always have one on the go. Otherwise, you'll be waiting forever. And in fact, one of the things an agent will ask you if you've finally got, you know, an agent has accepted, you know, you know, the, has the full manuscript and wants to meet you, is interested in talking about a contract, one of the things they will ask you is, what are you working on now? So don't uh, don't wait to get the first book accepted before you start writing on the second one. Anyway, I 
put perception and delusion aside and then wrote, um, you know, rewrote The Murmur of Masks. And I asked the RNA, I said, I'm happy to pay for it. Would they look at it again? And they came back and said, no, that the person concerned would prefer not to. I mean, she had her own work to do. So I paid for a critique of that and again got most useful <coughs> feedback. The most useful comment was that I was confusing plot and narrative. And the person who was writing the critique, she gave me some very, very useful bullet points about the difference between plot and narrative. And essentially, and in shorthand for any writer who's listening to this, your narrative, it's pure narrative if you're not progressing the story. So, for example, in Regency, I could write an entire chapter about a ball. And I could have wonderful detail of dresses and atmosphere and all the rest of it. But if nothing happens, it's pure narrative. Now, a certain amount of narrative is necessary. You need it, especially in historical fiction, because you need it to create the world that you're writing about. Yeah. So that is very, very important. But you should interweave your narrative with plot so that something happens at the ball. And you take away, you know, you don't need millions of dresses to be described, only one perhaps, and a couple of small things that will give it, create the atmosphere. But then the rest is, you can, if something happens while a couple is dancing, well, you're describing the dance as part of that dialogue then, you know, they separate, they come back together, she says something. Jane Austen does it in Pride and Prejudice. So, uh, you know, where she says, now, Mr. Darcy, you know, it's your turn to say something because I said something. And she's describing the dance as well. So, uh, with, so taking those books, I finally published, rewrote, um, or did a very savage edit on the first book, which was then A Comfortable Alliance and published it in 2021. That would have to be one of my favourites, I think, because it is the very first book. And also because it's a quiet book. There's, it's the story of... Um, it's not It's not really a marriage of convenience in the sense that the, the couple like each other. You know, and um, they get on well together. So it's a question, if you like, spouses with benefits instead of friends with benefits. And it's how then the love story is then how their relationship develops. But, you know, other things happen in their lives as well and how they deal with them. But it was actually, it has been my best selling book. So that was really nice to feel that because I thought, Oh, you're taking a bit of a gamble here. You know, there is very little angst in it and uh, very little conflict and will they, won't they or anything like that. So it was a question of, but and I, it's got fabulous reviews and everything. So I was really pleased with that. So I'm very, and I love the murmur of masks as well, because again, like that was the one then that with Luke and Olivia, where I took the trope of a marriage of convenience and it didn't work out. And again, that was then the what next and what my son said, 
what comes after the first happy end. You know, the beginning, it sounds like a very traditional, you say, well, oh, yes, in the end, the husband and wife will fall into each other's arms. But what if you make it clear from the beginning that they can't? What happens then? Um, so, uh, I, yeah, but, but you see, I could, I could give you a description of each book, but we don't have the time for it and tell you why I love it and what the challenge was. I like to have a challenge in each book as well. Yeah, so speaking, oh yeah, I was going to say, speaking of challenging, like, what would you say was the most challenging story for you to write so far? Well, there were two. One was The Murmur of Masks, because I had always sworn I wasn't going to write about the Battle of Waterloo. The Napoleonic Wars play a big part in my books, but they're off stage. And I deal very much with the situation of the women who are left behind. And, you know, and again, we have to think for 13 years, fathers, sons, brothers literally disappeared over the horizon. There was next to no war reporting in the sense that we would know it now. The most you would get would be the official dispatches that the London Gazette would publish are letters that would make it back home. And then remember that an awful lot, the vast bulk of the rank and file would not have been able to read or write as well. And then, you know, letters, officers, letters could go astray or, you know, boats would sink. Anyway, so for a long time, these women were left there to their own devices. And how would they deal with it? So that's one part. And the other, but then when Napoleon escaped from Elba in 1815, Luke Fitzmaurice in the Murmur of Masks, who had wanted to enlist as a younger man, um, and he hadn't been able to because he had been ill as a teenager. He had what we would call rheumatic fever, but that term wasn't used then, so I just had to describe the symptoms. Anyway, so we're you know, a good 10 years later now, and he goes to a doctor, gets himself checked out, and is told, no, it's okay. You know, you're, you're good to go. And he decides he's going to go. And because a lot of the army had been disbanded after 1814, and other regiments had been sent to, um, in, in the autumn of 1814, they were sent to the US because the war was still on ongoing. So the army was a bit scattered and depleted, so they were taking people. Anyway, he goes to Brussels, and I my big problem then was, how are you going to describe this? Georgia Hare in an infamous army and in the Spanish Bride, she has done two very, very detailed descriptions of the Battle of Waterloo. Like, if you like, nearly a bird's eye description, and I didn't want to do that. But there is a huge amount of first-hand accounts and memoirs of people who fought in the war. And I found the memoir of William Leach, who joined as an ensign in May 1815. And I based Luke's experiences on his. Now, not completely, because I wanted Luke to have freedom of movement. And he was, Leach was assigned to 
to carry the regiment's colours, which meant essentially he just had to stand there the whole time holding this flag pole with a colour on it. And he had colour sergeants defending him because it would be a great coup for the enemy to be able to capture the colours. So it was like a prestigious position. And I suppose they said, well, he's so young and he's no experience and he can do least harm here because he'd have the um, uh, the experienced colour sergeants to uh, defend him. So but I couldn't but look into that position because, you know, he, I wouldn't be able to get any action. But that was what I based it on then and other uh, accounts as well. But I must have rewritten it for three or four times, like from scratch, to get the... so that I could feel that the reader, reader is really experienced this as Luke did and seeing everything through his eyes. So that was challenging. And the most... the other difficult thing was last year's book, Lady Loring's Dilemma, Um. It's a sequel to A Suggestion of Scandal and Lady Loring does not appear in a very good light in A Suggestion of Scandal. And readers who have read A Suggestion of Scandal will know this. So my challenge was to make her sympathetic, to make people, readers, understand her and in the end to be rooting for her. And I was wondering, you know, would people go for it or not? But again, several of the reviews have commented on the way that I flipped the character as one, one reviewer put it, you know, so that she was, so, so that was a challenge. How was I going to do it? And, uh, yeah. So they, both of those would have been difficult for different reasons. One, to do with the external circumstances like the Battle of Waterloo itself and the research involved and the other because of the characterization. Oh, thank you so much for yeah answering that and like now um telling me like how much work went into um that scene for the murder of mass. I think I have to read that next now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really there, read yeah. that scene. So yeah, thank you yeah. so much for telling me that. But I know you already mentioned what authors um inspired you or like inspired your stories. And I was wondering like yeah. what um what specific books from those authors did do you did you really think like really like inspired you or really like inspired your love of writing? Do you know it if you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, Jane Austen, it would be Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park and Persuasion, which is my favourite, right? Um, and with Georgette Hare, she is just so, I mean, she, and she wrote so many, but let me just see, can I think, off the top of my head, Cotillion, because it is so funny and because she wrote herself, you know, she had two hair heroes types, you know, one who would have been very much of the alpha male and the Mark II who would be quieter. But generally the rule is the alpha male ones, wins, the, the girl, um, if he appears in the book. But in Cotillion, now I'm sorry if this is a spoiler for anybody who hasn't read it, okay. but just put your hands over your ears for one second and then go out and get it. Um she flips it, and it is so funny. And it is a very, very, very funny book. Um, I love The Quiet Gentleman, 
again and because it is one of her quieter books. Then there are, you know, the ones where she's absolutely on the top of her form, like the Grand Sophie with the most alpha of alpha types and uh heroine Sophie is more than capable of standing up to him. And another one that is, I think you either love it or hate it. I love it. It's a civil contract, which is a very quiet book, and it's a marriage of convenience. But it's just the way she deals with it. It's just so beautiful, you know. So, so often, so now that's four now that I've, I would say, you know. And uh, and of course, if you want to really, really go back to her very early books, these old shades, which is set in the. 18th century, it's, you know, before the French Revolution. It was um, a very, one of her very early books. Um, and certainly for sheer verve and all the rest was well worth reading. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much for those book recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so to wrap up this interview, I was wondering, and you did get some great advice, um, well, before in the interview, but what other advice would you give to aspiring authors? Well, the first one, of course, is to sit down. You know, it is the Germans have this phrase, Sitzfleisch, which is you're behind, you know, what you eat on, what you sit on. And to have Sitzfleisch means that you kind of glue yourself to the chair. And that is the first thing, obviously, you know, you know, don't talk about it, don't think about it, do it, right? Um, and even on the days where you're finding it very hard to get going, once you get something on the paper, it can always be edited. But having said that, I have deleted loads of stuff as well. But even at that, it will help you clear your mind. If we're talking specifically about writing history, yeah, um, and this applies to no matter what type, whether you're writing fictionalized history, you know, the great sweep of history, whether you're writing, writing biographical fiction where you take Henry VIII or Anne Boleyn or whoever and are writing about a real person, or whether you're writing historical fiction, which is I, what I write, where all your characters, apart from a few small walk-ons who really live, all your characters are fictional, but the world in which they live is real. And you are want to communicate to your readers. You want them to feel that they have stepped into this world, that they're experiencing this world. So now I have a research library of about 800 books. That would be 800 books that would all be to do with the Regency and history. So the first thing to do is read in your period. So read Jane Austen, read Charles Lamb, read Creevy. He was um, a member of parliament and his letters were published. Um, read Harry Smith, who was one who fought at Waterloo and went all through the Peninsular War. Read his autobiography. Read as much as you can, that was actually written in the time. This will help you absorb what the period was like. It will help you absorb the language and the phrasing. And it will give you quirky insights that will bring the period alive for your readers. 
So that is very important. And then, of course, there is the other sort of research, like don't ignore all the work that wonderful historians have done putting together books about, um, say, the Prince Regent or the, himself or there, you know, you can have books, cookery books about Georgian food, but you can also get the contemporary ones. See if you can find copies of the magazines they had then, like La Belle Assemblée. They're hard to get and they're expensive. But if you're lucky enough to find a leather-bound volume of six issues, which has all the fashion plates in it as well, you can imagine your character sitting there with it. So all of that. And then look at what I talked about the illustrations earlier. Look at them. So that would be the first thing. Do your research. Look and see the music that was popular, the literature that was popular. The Internet is a wonderful resource. If you're sending somebody to your characters to the theatre, you can Google and find out what was actually being played. I was on stage in London in May 1816. You can find out what was happening. You can take that into account. We're talking about narrative to create the narrative around how your characters, what happens to them. I mean, I have a scene at the theatre in The Potential for Love and I based it on Edmund Keane's performance as Richard III, you know. So they're sitting in the box and they're watching this and he was, he would be like, oh, I don't know now, you know, maybe the Colin Farrell or the Leonard DiCaprio or whatever of the the time, you know. So like he, and he was a wonderful actor and he had huge, stage presence and everything. And then I, I'm not saying it because of spoilers, but I read about something else that had happened in the same theatre a month earlier. So it really happened. But I then with, um, and I explain in the, um, in the historical note at the back, you know, that this did happen. And I just took it then and put it in then for my characters. But it really happened. And it was able to just light up the whole scene from the character's perspective and also to progress the relationship. But if I hadn't gone to the trouble of finding out what was happening in the theatre in London in 1816 and read, I read the autobiography of a famous Irish tenor um, who was very involved in the stage at that time. And uh, he described this as well. And I thought, right, I can bring that in. So, yeah, you know, so you have to be open to that and you're weaving really fact and fiction together. So that would be the thing. And then I do a lot of research on the Internet, obviously, and I have a massive document. It's a database, really. I call it historical facts and trivia. So if I'm researching and I come across something, I copy and paste it into that document. I may not need it today, but if I say to myself, "Mm, that's interesting. You know, I may not need it today, but I have it for the next time. And uh, I kind of this, it's a Word document and I just use headings to put some structure on it. And uh, it's massive now at this stage. 
but it is really, really useful. So they would be the two things that I would say to you with your research. Go to antique, you know, secondhand bookshops, antique fairs, charity shops, thrift shops, wherever, and uh, look at the old books. You'd be surprised what you can get and what good value you can get. Because a lot of these things, most people aren't interested in them now. So you'll get a volume of letters written by one of the patronesses for, for Almax. Anybody who's read about the, much about the Regency knows how important Almax was. But written by, say, the Princess Leaven, you'll pick that up for something like five euros. And it gives you just a different insight. And as I say, it helps you with the language. Um, another great source is the et- Etymological Online Dictionary, ETY. Um, online and uh, that is a dictionary that gives the etymology of words and tells you when they first came into use so helps you avoid anachronisms so it's the other thing about language do your best only to use words now if your books are set in the middle ages it's a different story you know because it's just, it was a different language then. I mean, you're writing in modern English, but you still wouldn't use 21st or even 20th century slang because, <laughs> you know, and you can, you know, use a few old words, you know, so that you can just, again, give a flavor, give a hint that it's a different period. So, I mean, in one of my books, in, it was actually for a comfortable alliance. Um, the hero who lost his father when he was six and he's remembering, reminiscing and remembering his father. And this book was set in 1821 and he's remembering his father and that his father gave him a present of a kaleidoscope. Now he was six when his father died. So this has to have happened, you know, um, and he's 30 now. So it has to have happened 24 years ago. And we're in 1821. So we're back in the 1790s. I looked up kaleidoscope. It was actually invented in 1817. So goodbye kaleidoscope. I couldn't use it. <laughs> yeah. you know? And Regency readers are very, very clued in. And they will pick these things up as well. And if you're somebody who is very clued in and something jarring like that happens, it completely throws you out of the story. And you also say, well, if she could get that wrong, what else has she got wrong? And then you begin to say, well, what am I reading? You know, I mean, is this really, you know, authentic? And you want to try. I feel anyway, I want to try and have it as authentic as possible. Now, there is another, there is the Bridgerton School of Thought, but that's different, you know. I mean, if you write in that style, well, um, you have more leeway. But, you you know, you do need to decide which one you're going to adopt. And uh, as I say, Regency readers are very, very clued in and very well informed. And if they want, if there's one thing they hate, it has been torn out of the story. by yeah. an They hate inconsistencies. <laughs> Yeah, would, would, would certainly be the research as well. Look for, you'd be surprised. The prints, the original antique 200 year old prints and engravings that you can buy for still 
for really relatively little money, when you, especially when you consider they're 200 years old. So buy these if you come across them. And actually, like, it's a wonderful excuse to go to antique fairs and to go to, um, antique, uh, you know, to book a secondhand bookshops and wherever else, because I find anyway, if I am specifically looking for something, I enjoy it more. Now, I may not buy anything, but I am specifically looking for something. So I'll go to the stands with a particular eye and I can say to, um, you know, the people on the stall, the stalls, the stall holders, well, I'm looking for this or do you have anything like that? And, you know, you get into conversation with people and every so often you make a real find, you know, which is wonderful. And in fact, I have started, I source the covers, images for my books myself. I don't do the cover design, but I source the images myself. And when I started, I would be going to stock images, you know, and you would find, say, miniatures and that. But in recent years, I have actually found it is as cheap or almost as cheap to buy the original as it is to pay for a license. And you have a lovely antique on your wall, uh, which is a nice souvenir of the year you spent writing the book. And you can do what you like with the, you, what you like with the image because they're yours. And, you know, there's absolutely no copyright in something that's 200 year old. And I mean, right. if you have a print and, or an engraving, somebody else may have copyrighted another one of that print, but your print is yours and you can use it what you, as you like. You know, you have it. You've made your, taken your photograph of it and sent it off, uh, you know, to your cover designer. So again, it's a way, but it, it just, again, it helps give the authenticity. I think that you have, uh, you know, rather than, um, the recreated photographs where especially, you know, frequently the dresses aren't, uh, particularly Regency, um, you know, you actually have a genuine Regency image on your book. So again, but again, you know, it depends. And of course, not everybody is writing Regency, but there are things that you can think about and uh, and do. So, yeah, so that was the other thing that I would say, you know, advice to, um, to writers and uh, don't give up. You know, I got an agent after about four years, maybe three, three or four years. And uh, then I was getting more rejections, you know, from, uh, oh, yes, it's very good. But, you know, you know what the but. Well, I felt that I just, you know, I mean, having had the experience of breast ca- cancer, relatively recently and I was in my 60s at this stage and I just felt I don't have the luxury of time you know to wait to get 42 rejections and then the 43rd you're accepted or whatever and I was also getting frustrated because the books were piling up because I was writing the books so in the end I decided to self-publish and it's gone very very well so again I would say to somebody you know if the agent route is frustrating you, go if you're going the agent route is frustrating you, at least consider self-publishing. Be prepared to consider to publish independently. 
Um, you know, but there's lots of people out there who'll help you with it. So it's yeah. lovely, lovely talking to you, Kathleen. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for I see those. comes up. Oh, what did you yeah. say? You, you know, on your name on the Zoom, Kathleen yeah. comes up. That's, you know, yeah. yeah so exactly. have you Irish roots? Yes, I do. Actually, my um, I come from both families, come from Irish immigrants, and I actually have some um, distant um, family living in County Clare right now that I'm going to be Lovely. visiting soon. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually my um, Kathleen, then Kathleen comes from my grandmother. Okay. So, yeah. yeah well, my, my Catherine comes from my grandmother as well. But my mother really? was, yeah, my mother was also Catherine, but she was christened, I think she was christened Kathleen, I suppose, to differentiate her from her own mother. Mm-hmm. So then I was Kathy, Catherine then again. Oh, that's oh amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I love like hearing about like the story behind names and like mm-hmm. people's first names, last name. It's very, very interesting to me. But can I just give one final tip for um I think we've time for oh, yeah. talking about names reminded me. Make sure that your names, the names you give your characters, fit the time and place. Right? Mm-hmm. That you're writing about. Um I have a 1940s edition of the Oxford Book of Christian Names, which is very, very useful because as well as going through, you know, the names, and it's based on work done by Charlotte M. Young in the 19th century. But it also says, you know, like when names were in fashion and when they weren't. Now, you have plenty of leeway, but it was just talking about Irish names. I mean, you would not give, say... Jane Austen's, one of Jane Austen's heroine, you would not call her Kathleen because it's an Irish name. And the, and the same way, if your books are set in Regency England, you wouldn't have, um, you know, names starting with an O because they would at that time have been specifically Irish. Similarly, the Macs, you could have, say, well, okay, you could bring in an Irish character. With the Mac or a Scottish character with Mac or the Irish character with the O, but they're not English and don't use English and don't use Irish names. People do it. And of course, because, you know, I suppose I'm particularly sensitive to it, but I just say, well, no, for example, Brendan is an Irish name. So you wouldn't be giving Mr. Darcy. He wouldn't be Mr. Darcy's brother wouldn't be Brendan Darcy, you know. Because it just right. it, it grates <laughs> on, on you, and the same. I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Irish, but I think we are more inclined to do it with Irish names because they lump, you know, Ireland and England together, and they think, oh well. And today there would be a lot more, you know, interconnection and everything. But it's just something to be aware of, and um, if you so, I, I check with Charlotte um, Young, and I also have. A dictionary of British, of English and Welsh surnames that was published in about 1900. And I use that as well when I'm looking for surnames so that I can come up with something different. And out of all my butlers called butler, for example. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just a small thing. Again, it adds colour and flavour. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was amazing advice for authors so thank you so much for providing so that welcome. yeah and thank you so much talking to you oh so yeah. talking to you too yeah
That was Katherine Coleman. All of her books are available on Amazon and Kindle Unlimited. So if you enjoy Regency romance, don't miss out on this exciting Irish author. Thank you all for listening and tune in next week for more content.